Hello, and welcome to the Soundweavers podcast. Soundweavers explores the trials and tribulations of small ensemble musicianship through conversations with leading performers and composers. Today's cast chat features our first ever collaboration episode with conductors Enrico Lopez-Yanez and John Devlin, the hosts of Upbeat Podcast. We hope you enjoy. Lovely and wonderful gentlefolk, welcome back to the Soundweavers podcast and welcome to the end of season two and our cast chat. We've got a slightly different cast chat today because we have guests and we're doing a collaboration with the amazing and wonderful Upbeat podcast who are made up of two wonderful conductors John Devlin who is the music director of the Wheeling Symphony and Enrico Lopez-Yanez who is the principal pops conductor of the Nashville Symphony and someone who I have got to work with numerous times with Rochester Phil and is one of my favorite conductors to work with um so we're going to talk about all things large ensemble and small ensemble especially what have we done through during the pandemic what are we doing now we're coming back into nearly the world of the living so let's launch into a little bit of questions first off i know that you guys not only have upbeat as your podcast but you also run this alongside an educational website everything conducting which has all sorts of interactive elements of it and articles about the world of conducting can you talk a little bit about what came first the chicken or the egg it's so nice to be here and thank you for the invitation yours is one of the podcasts that we love listening to the most so to have this crossover episode be finally arrived is very fun for us and uh Enrico and I are grateful to be able to talk about everything conducting just a little bit which is a website that came as the genesis of the project that was first uh, I guess that makes it the chicken um depends on and, how you look at the chicken and, and egg uh, thing, because we just, it's not necessarily the chicken yeah John. I guess I just saw I solved a century <laughs> century old uh question here so what we wanted to do was think very much along the same lines that you do entrepreneurship leadership and the business elements of what we do especially now during a time of such great great uh, upheaval is uh, vital to the musician's success and for example my dissertation at the university of maryland was on music entrepreneurship it wasn't on sibelius third symphony or something like that because i thought okay and actually i went around to all of the schools in the country including eastman which at that time was one of six degree granting programs in music entrepreneurship back when I wrote the paper. Now there are many more. And I interviewed the leaders of all of those uh, programs, Ray Ricker uh, up, up in Eastman, and, and said, okay, what are the things that you would advise every school in the country to offer at least a one semester course to your undergraduate students in the principles of what we believe in here as, as uh, essential entrepreneurship skills? And based on that, I founded um, a course that would be able to be designed for first year undergraduate students that I then taught. And then we thought, okay, in the pandemic, wouldn't this be 
useful for conductors who upon arrival at a music directorship job or a principal pops conductor job or even an assistant conductor job are tasked with so many things that nobody talks to them about in graduate school. So we started writing articles, we started having roundtable discussions, we have a beautiful team assembled, and then I'll let Enrico talk about the podcast which came next. Well, the podcast, I think, was John's excuse to be able to hang out with me more because we missed each other so much. <laughs> we used to be roommates back in grad school. So John was one of the first people that really, I mean, accelerated my love of the entrepreneurial side of the music industry and and the sort of endless possibilities and options that exist out there for musicians to get creative and really test what we have as these stereotypes of about what classical music or symphonic music, all that can do and be and how it can look and, and shape an audience's experience and interaction with music. So the podcast, I think, came about because John and I really wanted to reach people in whatever format they felt most you know engaged by. For some people, the article database that we have is is the best thing because they can go and it's a quick reading format and you can you know pull it up on your iPad and read it on your flight to your next gig or something. Or for other people who have long commutes, we thought, okay, maybe we can reach out and reach them in a format that's easy. You download a podcast and you can start listening to these two crazy conductors who uh, maybe don't think as traditionally as you have been taught in grad school or at any point in your career thus far. And, and it's been great because it's offered us an opportunity, as I'm sure you've experienced on Soundweavers, to talk and connect with so many people in the industry, creative thinkers, people who are really trying things in new and innovative ways, uh, as well as open up the possibility to then using those ideas in your own home or with your own ensembles and things like that, which has been great. And I'm sure that's been something that you two have discovered and hopefully made a part of your music making as well. So you briefly alluded to uh, the pandemic and we talked a lot about that in some weavers with chamber groups and there are certain challenges with it, but it's also a little bit easier to get together a whole bunch of people that are or in a group and have them six feet apart and so forth. Obviously with large ensembles, it completely upset the whole system. As conductors, what do you see that the pandemic has kind of like put a magnifying glass on for large ensembles? Do you see any change in the future? or how people are reacting to what happened during the pandemic, et cetera? Well, I'd say one of the things that really put to the test was our inflexibility as large ensembles. Uh, there's really, especially early on, this idea of, oh my gosh, well, we can't do anything now because it's impossible. I mean, if you have 82 musicians, there's no room big enough to socially distance us far enough to actually make something work. And so I think for the first time in a long time, it challenged arts administrators, conductors, musicians to really think outside of the box and think about the ways in which we can still reach our audience and interact and connect with the community. Because that to me is the most important thing an orchestra or musicians do is reach the community and have an impact locally. So obviously, like many places, you know, the ideas start generating around what can we do online? What can we do in, in small ensembles? Which for a lot of musicians that play in orchestras, they often don't get the opportunity to play small ensemble repertoire. So in a certain sense, it was kind of exciting at first thinking like, oh, wow, we can do, you know, these chamber wind pieces that never get played on the big stage because 
in the symphonic world, we have this sort of idea of like, well, we're paying 82 musicians. We got to use them all all the time or something. And why would we put on a Dvorak serenade that only uses nine or something, you know? So I think it was an opportunity to explore new repertoire, an opportunity to explore new ideas and ways in which we can go out into the community uh, in smaller versions of ourselves, uh, which is something that I think is important and we should have been doing previously and should continue to do post whatever, you know, pandemic or not uh, continues to happen uh, because it offers us the opportunity to be more flexible, generate new ideas and continue to evolve and continue to reach different parts and different aspects of the community because of that flexibility that we have now learned to at least start to tap into, I would say. So I am the music director of an orchestra that's just at the top budget range for still being per service. So we had an immediate advantage at the beginning of the pandemic where if we had an idea that employed nine or 21 or 32 musicians, that was the amount we had to pay for that week. And that offered us the advantage of experimentation. So we started doing every single type of concert that we could imagine different than being in our home hall with 1100 people looking this way at people up there. And I was very, very thankful for it because as Enrico mentioned, that's how I believe music should be presented anyway, um, in, in different ways with audience experiencing different things every time they come and see a concert. And so what this allowed us to do was experiment. And we did things with technology, of course, we did things with television stations, but most importantly, we started putting our orchestra activating many, many, many spaces in our city that had never seen the symphony before, putting the audience in all different ways around them and presenting repertoire that is entirely different than the repertoire they've ever heard before. So, so many great living American composers and our, at the Wheeling Symphony, our express purpose, the number one thing we put on our website and say at the Rotary Club meeting and talk to our board and donors about is supporting living American artists. And there are such great pieces for nine and 21 and 33 people that don't feel traditionally symphonic, orchestral necessarily, but actually speak to our times most directly. And so we brought those composers to Wheeling. We presented these concerts in innovative formats and some of those formats really worked. So we have a um, series, for example, called Sound Bites, where we teamed up with local chefs to create a meal that is paired artistically with the programming for that event. And the audience sits, three, sits 360 degrees around the ensemble. The ensemble goes and talks to and dines with the um, musicians in between the pieces and creates kind of a very casual environment for the audience, but the music is played with the utmost sincerity. And we like that kind of juxtaposition as, as, a, as an event. So um, these are the types of things that will continue after COVID is over, whenever that may be. If we had been talking four weeks ago or four months ago, we'd probably have different answers than we do today, BA5. Um, and now um, some of the things that we did, like broadcasting concerts on the local ABC affiliate, we don't want to do anymore. We want people to be live in our building and be around the music making in a different way, even though the numbers were quite good and we got donations and things like that. It just it didn't feel true to our mission. So that will be eliminated. And that's the spirit I love to continue, which is let's try eight things a year that we've never done before. And if one of them becomes part of our permanent offerings, I consider that a success. This fear of failure or negative feedback from the audience or, um, or, the, or changing things that have been standard for X amount of years. I like saying to the audience, we are going to ask you after each of the experiments what you think. 
because we only want things to happen that are resonating with you as, as people, but we will also want to spend lots and lots of uh, days, months, weeks, years thinking about what might be better than what we currently offer and see if you agree. I love that. I think for more traditional ensembles, such as a string quartet or a wing quintet, sometimes they kind of get stuck in the, no, I must do the um, the Mozart or I must do the Debussy and all of those things. But I I, I think orchestras kind of can sometimes fall into that same, uh, same band of going, oh, but what if the donors don't like what we're doing? And it's also kind of well challenged them. And I love it's I, I obviously I play the harp and I play in a harp and bassoon duo. We we have to challenge people. We have no choice. And people aren't gonna fall in love with or find the new Mozart if you are not exposing them to it, because you know, the the playlists for classical music on Spotify don't bring up the new living American composers automatically. They generate more Beethoven and more Dvorak and more, you know, whatever you happen to have punched in. Whereas if you listen to a top 40s playlist, they're constantly throwing new artists at you that you haven't heard. So a listener who puts in a random playlist is getting exposed to new music all the time. Uh, it's just kind of a, a difference that their opportunity to be exposed to that comes from us, the people programming the music on a chamber concert or a full symphonic orchestral program. And I think that the model here is a little bit at fault. And this is where I'd love to swing it back to you on the chamber side, where you all get to work on a program for a number of weeks or months, decide very carefully what the program is going to be and present the same one in many different cities over the course of a tour, which is entirely different than the model at a place like Nashville that may in a given week be presenting two or three different programs publicly. And in my, and in my orchestra, again, it's that middle ground where we get to prepare our audience for about a month because we do 14 concert cycles a year, which allows us to contextualize it and really plan carefully. But you know, our small staff is still overworked, but we're actually focusing on each program for about a month. How do you find that in the chamber music side of things where you get to think carefully before you unveil what your next project is going to be and you rehearse it in such a way that it gets to a point of excellence that then you feel comfortable taking it to your audiences? Um, do you find that to be an advantage in the way that chamber ensembles are designed? I think so, because our audiences are different, right? especially because if we're not based in one area, we could be, and we could be connecting to a community there, et cetera. Um, but often at times there are tours, they're all moving around because people live in different areas. Um, so the audience is purely on the people that are interested in you and not based on location. So you have an audience that is pretty much in that space. And if you do go virtual, which is great, and you got the donors and so forth, but as you said, you committed to the community, we saturate Rochester, like Rochester's saturated with arts. Like it's just overloaded with arts and we fight for the same audience for that exact reason. Um, but the nice thing about the chamber is that if we don't want to necessarily just fight for Rochester audiences, we can fight for other ones too. And it becomes based on interest of our mission, interest of our combination of instrumentation, instrument, interest of the people that are in it, um, et cetera. So, just that in Imani Wins Festival where I was presenting, they have a huge audience and many, many, many different spaces and locations based on their interest in what they do. So we do have that opportunity. Um, so we have the flexibility of that choice because our audience may be broader, so we can still get the same size, but it's all over. 
And so we don't have to question necessarily everything about our programming, because if you don't want to follow us, then you don't follow us. Um, versus orchestras is like, well, we're here, um, so please come. And you are limited by that. Given that you don't have necessarily a fixed audience in a particular space like an orchestra does, in a chamber ensemble, every member has to market or conductors who are maybe really engaged and want to be a part of it, try and help participate in that marketing effort. But what are the ways that you are able to reach audiences in different communities, particularly when you don't have a singular hall or space that is defined as your performance venue? What are strategies that you guys use to do that? Uh, first is, you know, connections that we have. We, if we're going to a space, it's because we know that space or at least that area for some capacity. So for us, upstate New York is very familiar from Lake George where she does, or I work at Syracuse and at Rochester. And then, you know, we got into the Finger Lake. So like we know these communities through other connections. Um, so that helps. Um, and then going out to Oregon when I visited, you know, she had her connections, et cetera. So that, that's kind of the stem. Second, we often also work with living composers and their connections are important. So we always make sure that they're involved when we do have an opportunity, whether it's because they're physically going out there or they are tapping in live stream and presenting through a virtual concert or whatever that might be. So they're bringing their own audiences along as well. We're also teachers and educators. So we tap into the classes and individuals that we connect to. So I teach at a summer camp. There's 45 high schoolers that are here. Um, I am promoting us and, you know, it's a careers class, but I'm giving us as an example. So why not? Right. And making those connections. Um, I just went to the Imani wins. So I have a whole list of all the people that were there. They know me now. We're going to go follow them on social media um, to get the, the one up and so not to wait for them to follow us. Right. Um, so it takes time because I guess the biggest thing about chamber groups that are different than orchestras is that they haven't been around for a long time. They don't have the history that a lot of orchestras do. And a history might even just be 30 years, but that's more than most chamber groups get to, or at least by the time they finish that 30 years, it then collapses down or it shifts into a new generation because different individuals take over. Time is of the essence when it comes to chamber music. So it does slowly start growing and you have to build that audience and you have to work on it um, and you have to expand it. And then at the point where the chamber group is like, okay, you know, we're, we're past that point for ourselves. Do you hire new people and just take over it? Or is it like that was a one and done because it's so connected to the individuals who are in that ensemble. And then it just becomes a thing that happened and then you move forward. Um, so that's, you know, one of those questions you have to eventually ask yourself, but it's a work in progress and something you just constantly have to get involved in and work on. And one of the things that um, captured me directly, Blair, near the beginning of your previous answer was we are able to collaborate with audiences that have opted into our product because you don't owe an allegiance to every citizen in the state of New York and this is something that I think traps orchestras a little bit, um, because for every step of innovation that I try to implement, say, in the city of Wheeling, West Virginia, I must be cognizant that many, many, many people disagree with my artistic vision or only come to see us once a year for their favorite concert that happens once every 365 days. And they want it to be exactly the same as last year's version. Right. And I can't ignore that as silly. Because the orchestra exists for all of those people. I am kind of like a, a, a 
nonpartisan politician in a way, right? Like as a public figure, it's like, I have to be there for the people with whom I disagree vehemently in some cases and with the people that align most strongly with my artistic vision. But I mean, that's what it's about, right? Is reaching out to the audience and entertaining. What Nobody's going here to see a concert of music of John Williams, not expecting to be entertained or expecting to have a boring time. They're expecting to be entertained like you would at any other concert that costs anywhere from 15 to $100 or more, depending on the seats you're paying for. I mean, if you go to a concert of any popular genre music, you know, non-classical genre, you're expecting to have a good time and be entertained. And sometimes we think, or we rest too much on the laurels of the music, expecting that to do all the work for us, which there are artists in the popular genres as well that do that. You know, there are very talented you know, singer songwriters or people who will literally sit on a stool and play their guitar and sing into a microphone. And that's all you get for two hours in an evening. And that that's great because sometimes that's just the magic of their voice of their songs. And, and that's sufficient to carry you along. But other times it, it's nice to have a little more than that and a little more of that engagement through theatricality, through artist engagement, through storytelling, through sharing something that breaks the fourth wall so that you don't feel like you've just put on a recording. I mean, John, you you talk about this all the time too, about the importance of conductors addressing the audience and engaging with the audiences beyond what has historically or traditionally been true. Is, you know, there used to be this expectation that a music director is the person who just shows up, leads and shapes the artistic product, but has their back to the audience the entire time. And that's certainly not the way I've seen you approach concerts. I think that the word that keeps coming to mind uh, is branding because we all have a musical home and here, you know, orchestras, we define ourselves by that physical home, right? We are the Wheeling Symphony Orchestra or the Rochester Philharmonic. Like there's no mistaking what and where. And so how do we have the impact we hope to have in that geographic location with the people that are in our orbit directly, but also have a purpose nationally? Because if every orchestra said we're focused only on our own community, which is the buzzword right now, right? Just community, like local. Um, then we aren't affecting the repertoire that an orchestra will play in Vienna in 2250. And I think about that too, because those orchestras stood up for their contemporary artists 250 years ago, and now they are played in a country 3,000 miles away or 6,000 miles away, depending on what coast you're on, and they've affected us. So we have every right to expect to affect them. And, um, and so my idea is how do we create pride in the impact that we wanna have on the national level so that our community feels like something national is also local. And part of that, as you're mentioning Enrico, is the communication of that, not once, not twice, but every day, over and over and over again, so that the new becomes the familiar. And I think if you aren't 100% committed to that and can articulate it in a way that explains the impact you're hoping to have, not just in your city this year, but in a different city in a different century, then I think they start to understand why it's called an art form rather than a show. And that to me is the idea of how you start tying together your different series, your education products, your long-term vision for the orchestra's impact 
And um, that's what I've seen to be successful. So right, that engagement aspect happens from the stage and in the community. And that's something that I think all four people on this call are, are, are committed to and yeah. it's exciting. Obviously, we've talked a bit about the pandemic and making music throughout the pandemic, but the classical music world is kind of having its comeuppance a little bit with regards to addressing issues around ADEI. With your position as conductors, how has this influenced your programming? Do you have any say in the programming if you're guesting at somewhere around the country? Like how much, it, how much do you have a say in what you're putting into your programs? As a pops conductor, so many of the genres we perform are music from different cultures, of different backgrounds, of people of different ethnicities from different countries. So it's actually a, a, a style of conducting that has always been more inclusive, I would say, than the purely classical side of things, just because it encompasses jazz, gospel, R&B, hip hop, you name the genre that falls into the pops category. So it's something that we've always had on our mind is just offering a big diversity of genres and a diverse uh, offering of artists. What I have noticed is on the guest conducting side, <laughs> earlier on in my career, I won't say early in my career because I, I think of myself as still young-ish, uh, people would warn me, you know, oh, don't pigeonhole yourself and start conducting only Latin repertoire, you know, because then you're going to be the Mexican conductor. And that's like what you do. For a while, you know, I thought, oh, that's interesting, because there are a lot of conductors out there who almost hide their background and their roots, and they try to only conduct the, you know, traditional Western canon, rather than embracing music of their country or their heritage or their upbringing. Post Black Lives Matter, I have had so many more people reach out to try and hire me to guest conduct Hispanic Heritage Month concerts or, you know, a mariachi concert or working with XYZ guest artist who is of Latin descent. And I have not shied away from that kind of work at all because I'm fine with and proud of my heritage and happy to share that with people and happy to try and engage audiences that have that same love for the repertoire uh, that that we're trying to promote and trying to push. So so it's been interesting that I've kind of gone against what was often suggested and saying, you know, it, it's okay because I'm proud of my background and my familiarity with these genres of music and I'm happy to be the one on stage promoting it and trying to engage new audiences through that kind of music. Uh, because I believe in that repertoire and believe that it should be part of the canon and should be part of what we present regularly to communities. Or if that's a vehicle through which we can bring in new communities to the concert hall, all the better. I think I'm at a slightly unique advantage in that, you know, again, pops is kind of the a general bucket word that gets used to really define anything. I mean, pops can be everything from the classic Arthur Fiedler style of light classics, you know, things like, oh, a concert of all overtures from William Tell to Valkyrie, or it can be collaborating with a death metal band. I mean, it could be anything that, that's so there's not really as high of a risk of pigeonholing yourself other than saying, well, he's a pops conductor. He, you know, doesn't necessarily do as much on the classical side, which fine, if that's what people want to think, then that's quite all right. Um, but that's been, I think, a nice thing for me is being able to explore more of my heritage now and have other people want to present music of Latin America post-pandemic, post post-George Floyd. Um, and then again, on the pop side, getting to 
bring repertoire from other diverse backgrounds and diverse areas into the pop's world. I'd say John on the classical side has been certainly more noticeable and a, and a big influence uh, on orchestras, maybe more noticeable of a shift than even on the pop side of things. Right. And I think you talked a lot about your identity. And to me, the conversations that we're talking about here gain the most from people being honest 100%. Like I'm a white guy named John from New York. I know that my family is from Italy and Ireland. But those cultures did not play a large role in the way that we live our lives in my house here. In fact, I'm at my parents' house right now in New York. And so to me, that identity of being an American artist is one that I'm leaning into heavily right now because that's who I am. I grew up five minutes outside of New York City, one of the most diverse places in the world. And then I understood who I was as an artist during my 20s in Washington, D.C., and there, I wasn't interested in only experiencing the things that related to me as a classical musician, clarinetist, co conductor. I, you know, as you know, I was like the music director and conductor of a group called the Go-Go Symphony, where I was the only white person on stage. And that was cool, too, because I lived there. And I had more in common with the guy playing cowbell in the Go-Go Symphony than I did with somebody in the hills of Ireland, where my family originally came from. So I think it's just being authentic about that. I don't pretend to be Black when I conduct go-go music. I just say I've learned a lot about this and I've had conversations with people that wanted to share with me something about them. And we live on, in the same city. And I've been invited into this to, as a participant. And I think conductors who approach those invitations with earnestness and from a perspective of wanting to learn are the ones that productively create collaborations between conductors, composers, artists, and orchestras. And so uh, as a music director, the conversations become more complicated because then it's, we're also responsible for diversifying the people on stage and in our audience. And that's a much more difficult thing. None of which, no, nobody trained us in this. We have to do it uh, instinctually and thoughtfully and through informed education with the leaders in our community. And so that's the thing that I'm finding invigorating and challenging at the same time. I think right away we can change the soloists and the composers we present because we have unilateral decision-making in those respects. For the members of our orchestra to change, that is a wide conversation because CBA, auditions, these things are ingrained for good reasons because initially the limitations we have in those processes were built out of anti-racism sentiments. But now we're having conversations about are those still working? And what if we want to intentionally create more diversity? Does the screen help or hinder that effort? And so these are the types of things that I'm considering all of the time. And I think by changing the type of people who are in the room, making sure you have black and brown people and people from all sorts of diverse other demographics on your staff, on your board, in the committees that you can assign ad hoc to help you with these types of conversations, the League is offering all sorts of things. Sphinx is offering all sorts of things. New Music USA, American Composers Orchestra, all these places are out there saying, we want to help you. So I think asking for that help and being part of uncomfortable conversations, if you happen to be a cisgender, straight, white man who grew up Christian like I did, is it's, it's not comfortable because we're used to being comfortable. But the more you do it and the more you show people what your goals are and they believe in those goals as you, as you do as well, then you can find these common areas. And so I think programming um, is the first thing that we can change and must change right away. And to see lots of orchestras responding to this, I was just at the League Conference last month, and the numbers are wildly swinging towards diversification on the stage. And that's just three years of data being measured um, since the last measurement. And so 
I hope that that's continuing. And the way that I see things from my friends and colleagues around the industry, I, I feel confident that they are. But of course, the work is just started. I love that. That's that's great. We need to like package that and make sure that lots of other conductors do this and orchestras do this. I yeah. I mean, it's going back to us again with. Um, from the chamber side of it, the nice thing is we get to commission things a little easier because it's a little cheaper to commission things for a chamber ensemble there is for an orchestra. But this is a conversation that we've had before looking at um, uh, our commissioning project a couple of years ago. We realized everyone we asked was white just because it was we asked people who were friends of ours. It wasn't through we asked people who we knew their music and we wanted to program them, but we went oh, we really need to look at how we're doing this. We need to start researching. We need to start reaching out to other people. And it's, I, I talk about this a lot and I haven't so much in the podcast, but it's, I think with being a chamber group, you have to be very authentic in how you do everything because you're very much being hot on your sleeve with putting yourself out there in a way that, Actually, I think conductors, I, I think you do a similar thing, but playing within a cog of an orchestra, perhaps you don't have to do that so much. But I, I think there is definitely that authentic and personal element that you have to bring into it. And you have to be very, very aware of the music that you are putting out and the music that you are also helping to create by commissioning. And Rosie, as you've mentioned, so much of this is, or our past programming was based on what we knew or what we had been taught. And that's where I think the programming decisions we make affect what the future programmers will know and what future musicians will know that they can choose from to present or the things that you are taught and play in school. I mean, that is when I graduated from, you know, grad school, anytime someone would ask me to program something, it's like, okay, what have I already played or what have I already conducted? That Those are the go-tos because it's safe. It's something I know. It's something that I will feel confident presenting and putting myself out there on. But if the only things you knew in school were the traditional male, white, you know, Western European composers, then it's a very limited view and limited bucket of options from which to pull for programming. And so I think the number of resources that have flourished and come out, uh, databases of new composers, of you know new, uh, even non-living composers, but just diverse composers from our past that have not been presented for quite some time. I mean, it's incredible. And it takes a little bit of effort, but that's on each of us as individuals to make that effort because this is important. And not only for the present programming, but for the future programmers and future musicians who will, like John said, 250 years from now be playing music. If no one's teaching them that, the cycle continues of that same canon being repeated over and over again. It's about systemic change, right? And, uh, embracing the fact, and I think this is what we struggle with the most, especially in our field, is we are overly educated. Um, and we are supposed to be experts in our area because we spend that much time in it. And then when suddenly we realize that we're actually not, we are experts in what was taught to us, not necessarily the entire music field. Um, and therefore it's a gaping hole. And I think basically that's the challenge that we're facing and those are embracing it and filling in that hole. And then there's others that are like, but I am an expert and this is what we've done and this is what I was taught. So 
um, and it becomes a challenge for them. So it's about making that systemic change that yes, it will impact the future. And now it just becomes natural that that space is already being taught within the systems and the structures that we have. So what I wanted to do is we have question roulette at the end of all of our interviews. So we would like you to pick either one, two or three. Two. Yes. Uh-oh. <laughs> what is the strangest gig you've ever done? Well, we started this concept in Washington, D.C. And we called it Gourmet Symphony. And we rented a black box and we were a team of four volunteers. And we essentially ran a wedding and an orchestra concert at the same time in this theater. And part of the reason why I'm answering this way is because Enrico was the DJ for the opening party. Oh my goodness. <laughs> and it, the reason it was strange was because no one in the room, the players or the audience members had ever seen anything like it before. And we have these pictures of the audience taking that ba barrier away between the orchestra and the, and, the, and the audience. For example, during the rests that the bass player was counting, the guy seated at the table behind him walked up and started talking to him and was like, what is that on your piece of paper? And he's like, I got to count. <laughs> like, you know, get out of the way here. Um, you know, and, um, and then we, we realized, oh no, we used plates that were ceramic and the knife is making noise when it hits the plate. And this is causing like metronomes to explode all over the, uh, all over the uh, thing. But it was that spirit of experimentation, right? We could help people along. Next time ask while the musicians are playing, please don't converse with them. That's for in between the pieces. And we took the ice out of the water glasses so it wouldn't clink around when people drank it. And we changed to bamboo plates so that the knife, when it went through the, 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 the beef or whatever, uh, didn't make a noise and refined and refined and refined. But that opening night, we had no idea it was going to feel like, we had no idea if the food was going to be good. We had no idea as if the players were going to walk out because somebody, you know, knocked their bow or so. And um, it, it, it worked out, but uh, that was definitely the strangest gig I had, but also the most joyful. And it also, and it makes me happy that Enrico was, was there. <laughs> I love that. That's, I think it that's was really a great nice. evening. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, but straight, strange. <laughs> Can I do a non-conducting gig? Does that Absolutely count you can. Okay. Absolutely you can. So this is something I <clears throat> try and hide and never talk about, but of course, podcast seems like the best place to then talk about it. Um, in college, I was in a electronic boy band duo that did a sort of mashup between 90s boy band meets electronic DJ hip hop music, uh, but it was also comedic. So we had choreography, we had, it was quite a thing. Um, one of our gigs, uh, you know, we played the LA scene because that's where I went to school and played at the Roxy, played at, you know, some cool venues and then played it one time at this art exhibition, art gallery, but it was like an underground art gallery. So you went like during this sketchy downtown back alley in LA. And then there was this weird sort of temporarily constructed art exhibit that we were performing in, we didn't realize that it was also uh, a body art display. So there was painting, but then the audience was encouraged to paint themselves during the performance. So paint was being handed out to the audience members. Um, and then people wanted to paint us, the performers. The problem was we wore all white. That was part of our, our look. 
So now people were trying to paint us in our all white outfits with body paint while also painting themselves to our music. So it became quite the experience, uh, but it's certainly one that I I will never forget. Uh, Would it be okay? Could we we turn a a question that we always like to ask our guests to you both? Absolutely, you can. (laughs) Okay, so conductors have this outsized impact on our industry, right? So many musicians spend their life being told what to play and how to play it by conductors. So we always like to ask people, what is the single piece of advice you would like young conductors just starting their careers to know about how you would like to have them have an impact on the industry? What is the single most important thing um, from your experience? Be kind. Because you're the big leader. And I think, especially with conductors, there's been such a history of which is changing. It's it, has been changing for a long time but there has been that history of the big intimidating maestro which I don't think gets the best out of the performance so I think just being kind to your ensemble admitting when you make a mistake and just sort of being being a bit human about it rather than being the superhero I think is it's going to make musicians just love you and want to work with you even more so I think this goes along with just your message and theme from your podcast which is you do more than wave your arms <laughs> um and everything that you do is going to be important and this applies to a lot of things but it does apply to conductors even more because you are leaders and yet that's not in the vocabulary that you're being taught yes you might like lead them through a piece but you're also leading the programming you're also leading a brand you're also leading the reputations of conductors as as stated um so understand that the music is a component of the larger industry of what you do pursue those things figure out your own brand figure out how that might impact the types of orchestras or ensembles if not orchestras because there's many other things that you can do as a conductor what you choose etc so i think that parallel is very important i say the same thing to chamber people like you're running a business uh but for you all because people do look to you for a lot of things. And yet I don't think that that's necessarily in your training. You know, how do you work with people? How do you handle conflict management? How do you please a board and an audience and your orchestra? How do you uh, respectfully tell a player that they're not being a good musician and also acknowledge when they are? Um, you know, I don't necessarily think that all of those things pop up all the time. I think it was more about the music and what pieces and uh, how your downbeats bounce off a two or whatever. Um, And so I think that's very crucial. So I think the types of things that you were all doing is going to be very um, useful for the upcoming generation. So they they really understand what it is to be a legitimate leader in the field. With that, that has brought us to the end of season two. And this awesome, completely different cast chat with the incredible and wonderful John Devlin and Enrico Lopez Yanez. If they are conducting a orchestra near you, please, please go and check them out. They're really, really wonderful. As always, I am your hopping host, Dr. Rosanna Moore, and my co-host today has been Dr. Blair Kerner, and we look forward to seeing you next season. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Sound Weavers podcast. If you enjoyed our show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and most other major podcast platforms. We hope that you'll visit us at www.soundweaverscast.com.
Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at SoundweaversCast and on Twitter at SWChamberCast, where you'll get episodes as soon as they drop, show notes and regular updates. This episode of the podcast was hosted by Rosanna Moore and co-hosted by Blair Kerner. It was produced by Adam Paul Cordell and engineered by Evan Henry. Our theme music was composed by Evan Henry and recorded by the Soundweavers team. On behalf of the Soundweavers cast, see you next season. Mm-hmm.